All right, all right. Welcome, uh, those watching online, those in the lobby, those in person. The video that you just saw is how Christians celebrate Jesus changing and transforming our lives. And whether you're new to Winston-Salem, you're here as a college student, or you've lived in Winston-Salem for a long time, one of the interesting things about Winston-Salem, at least that I've noticed, and every church kind of has its own culture and context and city that it's a part of, is that Winston-Salem is a very religious city. There's over 500 churches in our city. So here's what that means normally in a religious city. In a religious city, we have a lot of symbols and lots of traditions, and we've forgotten the substance behind them, right? Like, if you're new to Winston-Salem, what you're going to be hearing and seeing as we get toward Christmas is everybody's going to be going to Moravian Love Feast. Does anybody know what they mean? No. Uh, but are they beautiful? Are they fun? Are they traditions of people's family? Yes. It's a lot of, it's a lot of um, symbols, lots of signs, very little substance. Now, that can happen with baptism. Like, like I said about a lot of things, like... Nothing that we do here is obvious why we do it, okay? The, the fact that we have adults and we say, hey, put a bathing suit on, we'll give you a t-shirt, we're going to dunk you in front of a bunch of people that you don't know that well. It's like, well, why would we do that, right? You know, it, it, the reason that we do that is because water is a sign of judgment. It's like, well, this sounds scary, okay? Because in the Old Testament, like Jonah, right, he's thrown to the water, and the, the Red Sea, you know, judges them, and the flood comes and judges. So when you're, when you're baptized, you say, I've, gone, I've trusted Christ, I've gone under the judgment of God, and I've come up. Water also is this idea of cleansing. And, and here's the thing. When some of you, when you saw that video, you just knew right away, you need to get baptized. That's it. I mean, some of you, every time I talk about baptism, you don't like to make eye contact with me, okay? Because you know that it's your next step. It's, it's, now listen, baptism does not save you. It cannot save you. It will not save you. But it is the sign and the symbol of how you publicly identify with Christ. Some people, you know, they say, hey, you know, walk an aisle, raise a hand, tell a friend, fill out a card. You can do those things if you become a Christian. But what Jesus said is, listen, I'm going to give you the first commandment a new Christian should do is publicly identify with me in water baptism. And so what we're doing is we're, having, we're doing something we've never done before because we've never been in COVID before and we've never had seven months of no baptism Sundays. And so we're doing two Sundays in a row. So mark your calendar, November 1st and November 8th. That's right, both sides of the election. Okay, we need to get baptized on both sides. Okay, <laughs> That actually was an accident. We didn't do that on purpose. But, but we're doing that to basically offer you two Sundays, six services. We want to reduce friction, remove barriers. And so you can go online or you can go outside of the welcome tent. We want to help you take this next step. And let me just say, let's, let's pray uh, the rest of our church, those of us who've been baptized, for the people who've come to Christ and they need to get baptized. Uh, here's what I know. This, has, um, this is always a time of spiritual warfare because we understand that when you get baptized, you're drawing a line in the sand. And you're saying, I follow Christ. I'm publicly identifying with him. And it, in some ways, it makes your faith more real to you, honestly. It's kind of the story I've always told us. My wife and I, we got engaged, and for the first couple days, we didn't tell anyone we were engaged. Now, we were really engaged. But we kind of wanted it to be fun. As soon as we told everyone, it's like, we're not more engaged. It just feels more real now that everybody knows. That's kind of what happens in baptism. So let's, let's pray for those who need to take their next step, which it may be many of you watching online or in this room. And then uh, we're going to dive into the book of Exodus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for those who need to take their next step. We're always, I mean, if we're following Jesus and helping others find and follow Jesus, each of us is going to have different next steps. Um, but the first step for every Christian is water baptism. It's a public sign, Lord. And really, if, if we're not willing to do that, that step of obedience, we're probably not willing to do all the harder things you ask us to do, like to deny ourselves to take up our cross and to daily follow you. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, well, you can turn to type two, Exodus chapter three. We're gonna be in chapters three and chapters four, kind of jumping around a little bit today. Uh, if you're new, we're in this 3,500-year-old book called Exodus, okay? And we're looking at one of the most famous men in all of the Bible, in all of history, I would argue, a guy named Moses. So I'm not gonna kind of go over all of Exodus again. We don't have time for that. Uh, what I wanna talk about is Moses. Now, Moses is very much like you and I, and very much not like you and I, okay? There, there's some principles together. Like, what happens with Moses is he experiences three calls from God. And it's the same three calls that you and I experience if you're a Christian, okay? Um, It's the call to salvation, the call to sanctification, and the call to service. And and I'll kind of tell you how it works out in Moses' life and how it works out in our lives, because this will kind of bring us up to where we are with Moses, okay? Now, Moses gets a burning bush, which is pretty miraculous. We get a Bible. I would argue maybe more miraculous. The fact that the written word of God has sustained itself for 2,000 years when it has been tried to be destroyed by almost everybody, yet the word of God continues to triumph. So we, we don't get a burning bush, we get a Bible, but we get the same three calls. The first call is the call to salvation. Now, how does this happen with Moses? If you know the story of Moses, Moses does something sinful and he ends up in Midian. If you don't know that story, you can listen to past messages or read chapters one, two, and three. And what's interesting is he ends up becoming a believer when he goes down to Midian, which is, that happens to a lot of you. Some of you, that's your story, or it's, I don't know, it's your parents' story, it's your grandparents' story. Uh, this happens a lot, like, hey, something terrible happened into my life and God used it to turn me to Christ, Okay. It might be debt, it might be divorce, it might be a disease, it might be a death in the family, it might be depression. God God uses something in your life and it turns you deeply to the Lord. Now I can remember this. My call to salvation happened when I was 16 years old. I was a nominal Roman Catholic. And the way I describe Roman Catholicism is they give you a bunch of puzzle pieces to put together and then a couple puzzle pieces that you don't need, okay? <laughs> They're in the box as well, and you've got to kind of figure it out. And so, so, so someone came to me and said, um, a friend of mine, it's a long story, but I've told you some of it before, but basically comes to me and he says, lovingly, as only a friend can, Kyle, you're a sinner. And and really what happened in my life, and this is what happens in the call of salvation, the doctrines of sin and grace become personal and real in your life. That's it. That's the only way a person becomes a Christian. No one becomes a Christian by going to church. No one becomes a Christian by growing up in a Christian home. You become a Christian when the doctrines of sin and grace become personal and real in your life. So I was like, wait, I'm a sinner. Not just people are sinful. I know that. Um, Not just Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. Not, Not just that people will be judged. I will be judged. Not that God died for everyone, but God died for me, and that's, that's the call to salvation. So that happens to Moses, and that, that happens somewhere in Midian, probably connected to Jethro, we don't know all the details. And then there's the call to sanctification. The call to sanctification is becoming progressively who God says you are positionally. I don't know, let me think about that for a second. Anyway, God, God says you're my child, God says you're forgiven, God says you're cleansed, God says you're redeemed, then the rest of your life you'll kind of try to do that, try to live that out, okay? You're like, well, it's basically putting off the old man or the old woman, putting on the old man, or putting, putting on the new man or the new woman. And and what's interesting is this takes Moses about 40 years. He's in this deep sanctification process. God often will work deeply in a man or woman before he works deeply through a man or woman. And so what what happens, and this is interesting because this will be a lot of ways that you'll grow and and be sanctified, is that Moses is mostly sanctified by dealing with his disappointments. Right? Like by the time, many of you are young, but by the time you're 30 or 40 or 50, life has not gone as you thought it would go. And part of your, your sanctification process is why am I still single? Why am I single again? I was talking to a dad this week, not in our church. He said, man, I was hoping my kid was gonna go to Stanford Medical. He's now in rehab. I feel like a failure as a father. And I was just talking to this guy and we're we're walking through it and and God's using his life to change him. And God will often use our our falls and our our flaws and our faults and our failures to to sanctify us. And then then finally, where we're gonna go today is the call to service, right? So you can think about the call to salvation is an upward call, okay? The call to sanctification is kind of an internal or inward call. 
And the, the call to service is an outward call, right? It's, it's mercy, it's ministry, it's mission, it's, love, it's commitment to the local church and to the lost, okay? And so in, if you'll go with me into chapter 3, verse 10, I want you to see this. Chapter 3, verse 10, we get the call to service in the life of Moses. It says this, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. So this is a clear external mission. You know me, you believe in me, I've changed your heart and mind, I've transformed you. He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Don't you just love how clear God is? It's like, well, how? I'll tell you. Well, why? I'll, I'll get there. Well, tell me the details. Not right now, right? In fact, actually, a good mission statement doesn't answer everyone's questions. Like here, we want people to meet Jesus and be made into his disciples. Next door, what we want for the kids' ministry, you ever walk in there, it says, meet Jesus, make friends. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, how does all that work out? Well, do you have a couple hours? Well, I, can take it, I can explain it to you. The whole idea is the mission is very clear. It's very short. It's very simple. It could fit on the front of a t-shirt, okay? This is where we're going. And then what does Moses do? This is why it's so applicable. This is why I love the Bible. I, I believe in the truth, total truthfulness of the Bible, and that it is the word of God for many reasons. One is how it diagnoses the human heart, because what happens here is God, you know, we talked about this last week, appears in a burning bush, speaks the word of God to him, and then what does Moses do? The same thing you and I do. He makes excuses for the next two chapters. And you would think, well, no, if God clearly spoke to you about something, you wouldn't do that, but that is exactly what you do. If you say you're a Christian and it's the written down word of God and the Bible's full of commands and promises, what are you doing with all of them? Like, what did you do with the last thing God told you to do? You know, I don't know, you had a quiet time or you, you heard the word preached and you felt convicted about something. I mean, did you do anything about it or did you walk out and start thinking about all the reasons you can avoid and ignore that? And it doesn't matter anymore and you're too busy for it. It's like, our, our natural tendency is to begin to make excuses. And Christians, I know not all of us watching or not all of us in here are Christians. Christians, so let you behind the scenes, we are the worst at this. Because we pull the God card all the time. We say things like, I don't feel called to do that, which we know what that means, right? If you've been a Christian for like longer than a year, what does that mean? I don't want to do it. <laughs> right? What does I'm praying about it mean? I'm not praying about it. Um, <laughs> I don't even know if I'm thinking about it. Um, um, we, we have all those kind of things. In fact, there, it was interesting. They did this study. Um, why do Christians not come to church? And they went down and they asked them, and you know, they got all these answers. And they're interesting answers. Like, you know, one of the most popular answers is, I can get better preaching on a podcast. Well, true, okay, <laughs> true. But is, that what, is it about consuming religious goods and services? Is that what the church is about? Is that really an excuse to be selfish? Or here's another big one. Uh, I can't find a good church near me, so I just do church with my friends. We know what that means, Right? Oh, well, if you, you may not know what that means. Here's what that means. Um, dad can't get along with anyone. That's exactly what that means. Dad has nuanced theological beliefs. He wants to talk about the Canaanites and circumcision all the time. And, and, and dad doesn't like authority. He doesn't like accountability. He likes to do a house church where he can still be in charge. And all the kids are miserable and mom's miserable. I've seen that story many times. And so what you see is you have all, we, we, we do these excuses and we put them in God language. And what I want you to do is I want you to see what Moses does. Moses gives five excuses, and they get more and more. With each excuse, this is important to understand, with each excuse, we'll get more and more to the real heart issue, which is what you do, right? Like you, you have so many excuses for why you don't do things, and you have the shallow one, and then if somebody asks more, you tell them you have another reason why you can't do it, right? Well, that's what Moses does. So, so let's look at this. Chapter 3, verse 11. Immediately, Moses starts making excuses. Here's what he says, but Moses. Now, if you see but Moses or but in some guy, uh, or some girl, not usually good. If you see, but God, it's a really cool verse, okay? <laughs> if you see, but Moses, probably a bad verse, okay? 
Probably he's trying to get out of something. But Moses said to God, who am I? So he gets super spiritual. He's, you know, false humility. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So here's the first excuse we use. I can't. I can't. And whatever you put on the other end of that, you know, but, but it, it's some version of, I can't do that. And now people go, well, well, why would he say, who am I? Because at one level, if you actually are reading, you know, Exodus, what you would see is that he's actually probably the best person ever to do this job. He's been in the wilderness, right? Like God's actually been moving things around. He knows the wilderness. He knows how to lead sheep. He's going to have to lead God's people. He's actually already been to Egypt. He knows that. He knows this land. He's well-educated. He understands Egyptian culture. He understands Hebrew culture. He's like the perfect person to be a mediator. So when commentators and theologians look at this, they go, well, why would he say, who am I? I can't do this. And they think it's two reasons. And it's, it's the same two reasons why you and I say, you know, we can't do something. The first reason he says, because of my past sin, right? If you remember, and this hopefully will be encouraging to you, the first thing we find out about Moses is he's a murderer, right? Like main guy in Old Testament, Moses, what do we find out about him first? Murderer. Main guy in New Testament, Paul, what do we find out about? Murderer. <laughs> okay. Okay, God. You know, so God, God chooses these people who often have horrible pasts. And then the other thing is, and, and we don't know this for sure, but maybe Moses felt like, I'm kind of a coward. Things got hard. I got scared. I left. I guess I'm the kind of person who does that. So maybe I'm going to be the kind of person who does that again. And, and so many people, they feel like there's something that I did on a business trip, or there's something that I did when I was single, or there's something that I did in college or in a season of my life. And what, what wants to happen is God, and I think what happened with Moses, again, some of this is conjecture because we don't have a lot of the story. But I think part of what Moses had to do is he had to deal with his past while he was in Midian. He had to wrestle with it, right? Part of the way that you know this is a helpful just tool for you to know, part of the way you know you have dealt with your past is you can talk to other people about it. If you can't talk to other people about something in your past, you've not fully dealt with it. Or if every time you talk about it, you're still crying about it, you've not fully dealt with it. You've kind of got to deal with your past and say, okay, God, all things considered, you still want to use me. The second thing he says is, the second reason we think he probably didn't you know, think he was the right guy is his age and stage. Right? He's, I mean, we're going to find out in a couple chapters. He's 80. He's got a family. He's got a blue-collar job. He lives in Midian, which would be like the West Virginia of that day. You know, he's like, I'm not from the, I'm not from the right place. I'm not, you know, and, and it's just, and what you're basically saying, I, I don't think I'm the right guy. Now, now we do a similar version of this, right? We can use, and, and you'll see this, um, you know, I've seen every, I've seen, what's interesting is as our church has grown and I've met all these different people, I've seen people thrive in every age and stage. I mean, I just think all the medical people, like, yep, I've seen people thrive in middle, medical school and in residency and in fellowship and attending and chief res. I've seen all of that and I've seen them thrive. And then I've seen people make excuses every new place they get. Well, I can't do this in medical school. Well, not first year. Well, not second year. Well, not as a chief resident. Well, not in fellowship. Well, not attending. It's like, interesting. Some people are using their agent stage as an excuse the whole time. Other people are thriving in it. And what you'll find is in life, you'll, you'll either feel like you're too young. That's what I've been told by people who are much older than me. You either feel like you're too young, and then immediately you'll feel like you're too old. And you won't know exactly when you were the perfect age. It's like, you know, you'll, you'll feel too young until you feel too old. The whole idea is, okay, God, this is where you have me. This is my age and stage. This is my past. And actually what we saw in the, in, in, what we saw in the past with Moses is God's using it all for his glory. So what is God's answer to I can't? I won't go into it because we read it last week. But his answer is a bigger view of himself. A bigger view. He doesn't go to Moses like, you know, what we would do, like if you were to go to like, you know, most secular therapy, they're, what they're going to try to do is have you have a better view of you. Here's a self-help book. Start watching Oprah. You know, like, like 
just love yourself a little bit more, just look inside. And it's interesting, Christianity is the only one that's, the, Christianity is the only religion that says the problem's inside, the answer's on the outside. The answer's God, the problem's you. Everybody else will tell you, no, that's the opposite. You know, your boss is the problem, your friends are the problem, your school is the problem, you know, your spouse is the problem, and the answer's inside you, just keep looking. Well, that's the opposite of the truth. And so God doesn't say, here's self-esteem, he says, here's a bigger view of me. So that's the first excuse. Then he deals with the second excuse. You'll see this in verse 13 of chapter three. Then Moses said to God, "If if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Here's the second excuse. I don't know enough. Right? I mean, that's, and so we're kind of getting, so, it, so okay, it's kind of like God's like saying, okay, Moses, so that wasn't it, right? Because I said I'd be with you. I said I'd give you my presence. But like that wasn't enough for you because that wasn't really the issue. The issue is that you feel like, it's not that you can't, it's that you feel like you don't know enough. Okay. And, and, and think, with, uh, think with me about this for a second. It's like, well, okay, what, what is God's answer to I don't know enough? God's answer is I'm going to teach you a lot of things. That's it. I mean, you read the rest of the chapter, God's like, well, I'll reveal more about you, and I'll tell you what to say to Pharaoh, and I'll teach you. The whole idea is, okay, that, when you read these excuses, you, you need to go, that can't be my excuse, ultimately. It's like, you know, okay, so God's going to call you to do something. Do you think that you get to continue to just be you? Stay where you are? Or did maybe, whatever God's calling you to, it'll, you'll need to read more, you'll need to study more, you'll need to learn more, you'll need to grow more, you'll need to have better relational skills, you'll need to learn how to repent. It's like maybe you're gonna have to grow a lot. And, and here's the amazing thing, we live in the greatest time in the world where we can, we can never say, I don't know enough. It's like find a podcast, find a YouTube video, find a book on Kindle, find a godly mentor or someone to disciple you. Like we should never be able to have the excuse, I don't know. And here's a helpful principle as well to know. When you're, when you're using excuses, here's a, everybody's talking about wanting to be self-aware, right? Oh, isn't that so cool to be self-aware? You know, you're, you, the most self-aware person is you know, the best person. Well, here's a helpful self-awareness thing. Assume you're always doing the easiest thing. Do not think you're some noble person who's taking the high road and doing the hard thing. Probably not. You're probably doing the easiest thing possible and then learning how to make excuses about it. You're probably taking the path of, why would you not do that? It takes no explanation to understand why someone would do that. It takes a lot of explanation to understand why anyone would do anything other than that. And so what we see with God is he says, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to give you my word. God has given, and what's amazing is to live in 2020, we, for his, you know, not the greatest year, okay, 2020, but, but, to, but the, to live in the 21st century, what's interesting is it's like, man, we have all of church history so far, 2,000 years to, to learn lessons from. We have so many people who've thought through things and written about things and so many things we can learn from. So the question is just, where do you need to know? Where do you need to grow? Okay, here's the third thing. The third thing is, now we're really getting at the heart of it. And the third one is, is found in chapter four. Chapter four, verse one says this, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Now I want you to see the progression. First he says, I can't. God says, well, I'll give you my presence. Uh, he goes, oh, oh, actually, I don't know how. God says, well, th- cool, I'll teach you. Well, actually, I'm just scared. It's like, oh, that's what's the issue. And how many of us are, that's the motivation in our life, right? Fear's a very powerful motivation. I mean, the fear of man, it was warned out, get, fear not is the number one command in scripture. The fear of man is con- con- called a snare in scripture and is continually talked about. And it's like, well, what is Moses so afraid of? Well, there's a lot, right? I mean, if you, if you kind of put yourself with Moses, what would he be afraid of? Well, let me give you a couple things. He'd be afraid of going back to the same people he tried to help last time and he failed doing it. He's going to be, he's got to cast vision to people that he hopes are going to follow him. He's got to go talk to the most powerful man in the world. Really, 
He probably fails, or he probably fears the two things that you and I fear, failure and doing something new, right? He's afraid to fail. And, and let me tell you a story about this that's interesting. I was reading a book, and, and a guy was talking about this idea of failure, and he said when he was in third grade, he was playing baseball, and if you know anything about baseball with kid baseball, it's like that's the age when you start doing kid pitch versus you know, kids versus kids with pitching. And he said he got up there and he was so excited about kid pitch and he practiced and like for two or three games, he struck out every time. And he said it was humiliating and he's embarrassed and his parents see and his friends see. But he said, I'm a smart little kid, so I go to the dugout and I notice that these pitchers are terrible. <laughs> and if I just watch them pitch, it, uh, they, there was a good chance that before they would throw three strikes, they would throw four balls. And he said, I don't know, because he's like, I was young. I don't know if I consciously did this. He said, I just decided I was never going to swing the bat again. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and, and, and this is even deeper. He said, what's going to happen is other people will fail, and that will help me succeed. Four balls instead of three strikes, and I get on base. And other people will do good things, and I'll be their RBI. Most men live their entire lives that way. Right, because it's like you swung the bat and it's embarrassing, right? Failure's embarrassing. Like imagine, I'm using a couple medical examples tonight, but imagine that you're a, um, I don't know a lot about this stuff, but I know this. It's like, you wanna be a doctor. It's like, and you're like, you're all excited about it and then you fail organic chemistry. It's like, oh man. It's like failure will teach you a couple lessons. It's like, well, what is it? It's like, you've gotta start, right? But the, part of the idea is we learn from failure, right? Because you fail organic chemistry, so is it you? Maybe you're just not that smart. And that's an option. Maybe you shouldn't be a doctor. Maybe you're lazy and studying. Maybe you should, it's like, well, I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's painful to fail, and I've got to ask a lot of questions when I fail. That's why we don't like to fail, right? But we need to fail forward. We need to fail fast. We need to be committed to learning from failure. Like, I actually think this is why most men don't ask women out, right? And this is why I read this article. It was interesting about, about how dating apps don't work because there's no failure. Like, there's no real risk built in. Like, back in the day, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, there, a... a <laughs> A embodied man would walk up to an, in, a, the woman would be embodied there, and she'd be a human there too. It wouldn't be over text, it wouldn't be over Facebook, it wouldn't be over something else. And the guy would make, this, it was called eye contact, would make eye contact with, <laughs> with people and, and then would ask this girl out, right? And then either she said yes, and that'd be very exciting, or she says, we're just friends, which is really hard. Here's what that means. You're not worth reproducing. That's a hard thing to hear at one level. It's like, yikes. Right? And if you hear that at a couple times, you're just like, okay, I got you know, I, I to do something about some, some of this. I've got to put myself together. But the whole point is, now this is why, I'm, I'm really just getting very practical with you. This is why a lot of people don't set goals. Because what is a goal? A measure of what you could fail at. So here's what happens if you don't set goals. You fail all the time but you don't know it till you're 40. What is, what, I mean, that's what a midlife crisis is. I failed and I didn't know it. But I failed for 25 years, but I was ignoring it and avoiding it and I wasn't looking at it and I didn't want to admit it. And so fear is a huge motivation in people's lives. One of the reasons we have to fear God is we, need something, we do need something to fear, right? We, 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 we need something bigger than our current fears. So here's what God does. God gives us, this is interesting, what does God do to our fears? He gives us two signs, okay? He gives them three signs, actually. He gives him the staff, we're gonna look at this. He gives him the leprous hand, and he gives him the Nile River. And it's interesting, what, with each one of these, God is going to meet the need. 
You can't do it, I'll be with you, okay? You, you don't know, I'll teach you. You're afraid, I'm gonna give you signs. And these signs, we'll look at them right now, these signs are as much for Moses as they are for Pharaoh and the, the people. Okay, look, let's look at these. Uh, Exodus 4, verse 2. Here's what we'll see. Um, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said a staff. Now, I think he said that with shame. We don't know that for sure, but it's like, yes, this is the staff I've been carrying for 40 years. This represents my failure, my missed opportunity, my blue-collar job that doesn't pay very well, my wandering in the wilderness. That's what this staff basically represents. And God says this. And God said, or he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. And, and that's number one rule of serpents. You run from them, okay? <laughs> rule one of a snake is you run from it, right? We don't like snakes. But one of the whole ideas of this, by the way, is um, God is going to take control of what everybody else fears. Right? And none of, I mean, you, you might be that unique person who likes snakes. Most of us don't like any reptiles, right? That's why when aliens show up, they look like reptiles in movies, right? They don't look like fuzzy bears, right? They look like reptiles. We're scared of reptiles. So you kind of have this idea. He says, all right, now look what he says in verse four. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Now, rule two of snakes, rule one is run from them. Okay, that's rule one. Just remember that. Rule two is never grab it by the tail because, you know, it will turn around and it will bite you. So this is, in, this is a, God, I've got to trust you as I do this. This may be the first brave thing Moses has done in years. Right? And it's like, well, how do you, you know, become more brave? If you, if you talk to anyone who's been courageous, they never say, like, I, they're not like sociopaths. It's not like, courage is not like, I'm not afraid and I just do foolish things. Um, courage is, I move forward even though I'm afraid. So he says, I want you to, and, it, and by the way, it's in the obedience. It's in the faith-filled obedience that God moves. So here's what he says. Um, put, verse four, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. Verse five. And then God says, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So that's the first sign. Second sign is leprosy. Um, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand in his cloak. And when he took it, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. Again, we see faith-filled obedience. So he put his hand back in his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And then verse nine. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So he gives them these three signs. One has to do with snakes and scary animals. One has to do with the worst disease of that time, leprosy. I mean, it was incurable. They created colonies. They ostracized you if you got it. And the other had to do with kind of their, the status symbol of their culture. We'll talk more about this when we get to the plagues. But the Nile, it represented life. It represented food. It represented prosperity. It represented a barrier and a border. I mean, it was a big deal. And so God gives him all of these signs. Now, what are the signs God gives us today to, to give us courage? The bloody cross and the empty tomb. It's like, that's it. That, it's like, well, how, how do I know that God is gonna take care of me, that God is gonna provide for me, that I can boldly move forward? God has given us the signs of the, the bloody cross and the empty tomb. They're signs forever. And then we show those signs in our church signs, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we talked about both of these today already. And so he, he gives him, he, he deals with all of his excuses. First, I can't. Second, I don't know enough. Third, I'm afraid. Here's the fourth one. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech 
and of tongue. Verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or, uh, or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So here's the third thing, basically Moses is saying, I'm a broken person. There are things that are wrong with me. And it's like, you know, that's okay to admit, right? It's like, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken, you're, we're all broken, right? It's like, and, and I, you know, there are, when I say this, there are real victims, but don't play the victim card. There are real victims, hear me say that. Most people like to play the victim card, the noble victim card. Woe is me, because of my lack of education or something my parents did, or my genetics. It's like, you know, it's like, if you talk to enough people, it's like everybody's got something wrong with them, or they know somebody who has something wrong with them, and everybody's trying to deal with it. And, and so here's Moses, he's like, I'm slow of speech. He's like, we don't even know what that means for sure. Like in the Hebrew, like, what does that mean? Did he not, did he have kind of a disability with speaking? Maybe. Paul has this kind of thing he says about himself that he wasn't a great speaker. The apostle Paul said that in the New Testament. So it's like, well, what, what does he mean? Is, he, is, he, is it another kind of, is he psychologically fearful to speak? Is that what it is? It, it is, because I mean, he's educated in this Egyptian background, which we saw. So it's like, well, what, what's the issue there? Here's the thing. God's not just going to use your strengths. He's going to use your weaknesses. Right? I mean, we, we think like, the way that God's going to use me is he's going to use my strengths. It's like, well, yes, I think he will. And that's why he's given it to you. But he's also going to use your weaknesses. Do you notice there God says in verse, let me read it to you again. In verse 11, God says this. God said, who's made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, this is interesting. God takes credit for how people are. Which, sometimes that can be a really scary thing. And it's not meant to be read scary. It's not meant to be like, oh, this sovereignty of God, and it's all scary. It's actually meant to be incredibly comforting. Like, I, there's a guy named, I can't pronounce his last name, but Nick, his last name starts with a V. And, he, and <laughs> you'll, if you Google him, you'll find him. But he, he has a ministry called Life Without Limbs. You've probably heard of this guy. He was born no arms, no legs. So you have to hear him tell this story. But basically, he tells the story, if you could imagine growing up like that. And, um, and he says, you know, he was bitter and resentful and struggled and, and until he was about 15 years old. And he said it was reading the story of uh, John chapter 9 in the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 9, there's this scene where this, uh, they, they see this blind man. The disciples ask Jesus, is he blind because, like, did he do something? Or did his parents do something? Why is, you know, what, what, why is he blind? And the answer was, this man was born blind for the glory of God and that the works of God may be done through him. And Nick, who has no arms and no legs, said, that changed my whole life. He said, because I wondered, maybe God made me this way for a purpose. And that, that's, that's Nick saying that. You've got to read about him. And he has this worldwide ministry that God has used him to minister to so many people and to give such hope. We have no idea how God, we just think God uses our strengths. No, no, God also uses our weaknesses. I, I've said for years, and I, I, I believe it's completely true, your greatest ministry will most likely come out of your greatest weak, weakness, your greatest sin struggle, your greatest suffering. That, that's what's going to lead to your greatest ministry. Which leads to the fifth, the fifth um, excuse, which is the real excuse. Verse 13, he says this, But Moses said, but he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And I want you to see how God responds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Now, this is interesting. So, so far, let's sum it up. He, Moses says, I can't. God says, I'll be with you. Moses says, well, actually, I don't know. God says, well, I'll teach you. So that can't be an excuse. Then Moses says, no, I'm afraid. And God says, well, no, no, I'm going to give you these signs, and I'm going to be with you. And then, and then he says, man, I'm not really, you know, I don't, I don't speak very well. And then God, actually, I didn't even say this. God gives him a very specific promise in verse 12. I will be with your mouth. This very specific, it's, it's even a more specific and detailed, I'm going to be with you. And then we finally get to Moses' 
real excuse. Let me read it to you one more time. Verse 13, but he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And God gets angry, why? Because here's, here's his final excuse. I won't, I just don't wanna do it. It's like, and I actually think this is, this is so deep. I actually think we're, at the, we're in the basement when we talk about it. I don't think it goes any deeper than this. Like, it, well, you know, why do you still struggle with your addiction? At, at the deepest level, your porn addiction or your substance abuse addiction or who knows what other addictions there are right now. It's like, why do you still struggle with it? Is it because you don't know how to overcome it? Probably not. Or you, not that you couldn't find it out. You know, is it that you're afraid? Well, you might be a little afraid. What's the, what's the ultimate reason? You won't. It's, it's such a, it's like, why is your marriage in the same place? Because you won't change. Or one of you won't change. It's like such a terrible thing to know about yourself. It's like, why aren't you as holy as you could be? Because you don't want to be. That's it. I, you probably were hoping for like a, just trust the Lord more. Just pray about it a little bit more. It's like, no, no, we're getting, we're actually so deep under this. Because actually what happens is, what God wants us is to stop making excuses and start looking for grace. It's like, all right, basically to live like this, you have to get rid of all of your excuses and say, look, the real reason I'm still struggling with this is because I want to. Because there's a part of me that doesn't want to do what I have to do to get rid of this. I don't want to confess this, that's the issue. I don't want to work on our marriage. I don't want to prioritize Bible reading. The reason that I haven't been baptized is because I don't want to. It's like, wow. Well, you know what's good about that? It's like, well, good. Now, you can, now you're being honest. And now we can deal with that. Now you can say, all right, well, God, well, would, you, would you change me? Would you, would you work in my heart? That's where the faith component comes in. That's where the grace of God component comes in. I'd, li- I'd like to change. And see, I, and I've seen this happen. See, what will happen in a person's life, if you ever want to, and you, you know, don't do this to a stranger, but somebody you know and love, if you ever want to confront somebody about patterns of sin in their life, here's what you do. And this, this is exactly what happens every time. If, if someone's got an unrepented pattern of sin in their life, you need to, you need to have three examples of them doing it. Not, not one, not two, because one might be you and two might be a coincidence. Three, it's gonna be really hard for them to deny. So you go to them with, with whatever the three things they did that's the same kind of sin, and you tell them about it. And then you know what will happen, right? Because this is what'll happen if we do this to you. You'll start to make excuses. And most people get overwhelmed when people start making excuses. It's like, well, I, I don't wanna have to think about this. I don't wanna have to, I don't wanna have to try to you know, deal with your excuse and, and, and ask you why and try to help you and realize that's not really the excuse. And, but if you'll do all that, then here's what they'll do. They'll get angry every time. If they're trying to make excuses and you lovingly call them out on it, stay calm, but lovingly call them out on it, they'll cry. Or sorry, they'll get angry. And, right, wrong order. No, they'll get angry, that's the angry. They'll get angry. And then if you, if, you, if you can deal with their anger for a little bit, which is scary, and most people don't deal with people's anger very well. It's like, oh no, they're getting upset. If you can get through that, they'll normally cry. And you're getting very, very close. When a person cries, it's like, then you get really scared. It's like, oh, I don't know how to deal with all these emotions. Especially if a guy's talking to guys, I don't know how to deal with those. But if you can work through the crying, then you can have a conversation with a real person. And then you can say something like, oh, that's why you drink so much. Oh, thank goodness, okay. We had to get there. It took an hour and a half and you lied to me and you made another excuse and you, you, you kind of told yourself you weren't going to tell me. And then you got, you, we got some places inside of you emotionally and now we're there. And that's, that's, what, that's what Christian communities, you know, you don't do it to strangers on the street, okay? But, but, but you do that in Christian community and we help each other, right? Because this is so deep. What is God's answer for Moses' final excuse of I won't? The answer is Christian community. He's like, let me go get Aaron. Because the truth is, you can't see all of your excuses. I can't see all my excuses. We have to see each other's excuses. And we have to lovingly be able to call out, have questions, and walk with it. So watch what happens. God both gets angry, but also gives grace. Verse 15. 
Sorry, verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will, and will teach you both what to do. Verse 16. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And in your hand this staff with which you, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So he gives them this kind of partner in ministry. And from there, I'll just briefly go over this. I won't read all this. In verses 18 to 20, he basically goes home and tells Jethro. But you know, what we call, this is the internal call versus the external call. The internal call is I feel like God's telling me to do something. I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying, and I feel this passion, but I don't, I want to have an external call, right? I want, I want loving people who love me and know the Bible to confirm this. He goes to Jethro, Jethro blesses him, sends him off. Uh, then look at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And I, I can't get into that tonight, but there's nine times where the Bible says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Sometimes it just says it was hardened. Sometimes it says God hardened it. Sometimes it says uh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We'll get into that in, when we look at the plagues. Uh, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So if you've never read Exodus 4 before, this would normally seem like it would be the end of the story. God comes to Moses, tells Moses what he wants him to do. Moses does what we do. We make a bunch of excuses. God deals with it, makes all these promises, gives him community, gives him a partner in ministry, um, and then reconfirms his message, right? So you're like, that's good. So now he knows what to say, and he knows exactly what to tell Pharaoh, and that's all really good. And then verse 24, and verse 25, and verse 26 are considered by many to be the strangest three verses in the Old Testament. So again, remember what's happening here. God and Moses have this final thing where God's like, all right, like kind of calls a huddle and says, all right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go and you're going to tell Pharaoh all this. You're going to tell him that you're going to warn him about the firstborn son. I'm going to harden his heart. This is all the things that are going to happen. All right, go. And then look at verse 24. Here's the next thing we're told. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And I'm going to have Pastor Dave come up and teach the rest of this. Okay, no. <laughs> No. I mean, I mean, if you've never, I mean, if you've read that before, you're probably shocked. If you knew it was coming, you're probably shocked. It's like, well, what's this about? It's like, well, let's talk about it for a few minutes. It's like, is God going to kill Moses? Well, it's interesting because it says he sought to kill him. Now, look, if God wants to kill somebody, they're going to be dead, you know. But what, what, what this is, many people look at this as very similar to Jacob and God um, wrestling, right? Like, they wrestle all through the night. God lets Jacob win. Why does Jacob win? Well, because God lets him win, obviously. Uh, this is more to teach a lesson. This is, if God wanted Moses to be dead, Moses would be dead. This is like God wanted to sh tell, show Moses how serious he was about covenant keeping and obedience. Because look what happens. It gets just a little bit more interesting if we read verses 25 and 6. Then Zipporah, that would be Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. I've never seen this on somebody's refrigerator as a Bible verse, okay? A memory verse, okay? This is not a scripture memory verse people are working on. Um, um, touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, 
To be honest with you, I, I read a lot about this this week. There's a lot about this passage we don't know. Um, but we believe all scripture is God-breathed and useful and helpful. And there's a couple things that we do know. Um, one, it appears that Moses had not circumcised his own son. And it's very confusing. But it's just real enough to be the truth, right? It's just strange enough to be the honest truth. It's like, here's, how many times does this happen, right? You, you hear about some great leader and you're like, he doesn't even pray with his family. But he prays publicly for hours. It's like, that, that sounds like something people would do. That sounds like us. That sounds very human. And here's the whole idea. God's like, look, you've got to take care of your own life and your own home before you lead my people. And it, it's, a very, it's a very serious idea, because the whole idea, and I won't get into it, I've talked about this in the Abraham series, but circumcision was, was uh, a brief lesson on circumcision real quick. Um, circumcision was God's way to say, I'm involved in the most intimate, vulnerable, private, you don't even want me there areas of your life. That's the God that I am. And the, and the sign of circumcision was given to the people of Israel to say, this is how you recognize you're in covenant and relationship with God. And in the covenant is forgiveness and life, and outside of the covenant is death and judgment. And what we see is God takes sin very, very seriously. Now, here's what's so real about this story. Here's Moses, this great guy. He's not leading his family well, and guess what has to happen? His wife has to step up and do something. And she's not happy about it. When you read bride, you're a bridegroom of blood, that's not a compliment. <laughs> Okay, that's not like sweetie pie, you know, they, they, that's not a nice thing to say. What she's been, this is the classic story, I've seen this so many times, which is that men abdicate their authority, they abdicate their calling in the home, they are passive, and women have to step up in their place, and they're frustrated that they have to do it. I mean, I'm telling you, in, in 13 years of full-time ministry, less than five times have I ever heard a wife say anything about her husband being too strong in the home, too dominant. I know that can happen, I'm not making light of that. That can happen and men can be abusive and men can be domineering, but I would say 99.99 repeating times I hear women say, my husband is passive and I want him to pray with us and I want him to lead our family and I want him to take care of the finances and I want him to say let's. I don't wanna always be the one that says let's. I want him to say let's. And so what we see is, is God, this story ends in chapter four with God taking sin very, very seriously. Which is just, it just reminds us of the weight of all this. It's like our excuses, many of them, are not only goofy and foolish, they're also sinful. Christ had to die for our lame excuses and sinful and rebellious behavior that, that falls under it. And so the great, the great truth of scripture is if there was one person who could have made an excuse to not come and not do something, it was Jesus Christ. Right? There's someone who said, I don't, I don't need to go down there, right? They, they're not worth dying for. It's going to be too hard to become a man. I don't want to live for 33 years on earth. I don't want to die a terrible, gruesome, excruciating criminal's death. But Jesus Christ did all of that in our place for our sins. So that we can come to him. And that's, this is the cross of Christ lets us be honest about our excuses. The reason that most people can't be honest with their excuses is they don't know what to do with their sinful hearts and their sinful behavior. But if we can go, look, look, if I'm gonna be a Christian, I'm gonna make a lot less excuses and I'm gonna confess a lot more sin. I'm gonna ask for a lot more grace and a lot more help. That's what we're gonna do. So my question is, where have you been making excuses? Some of you make excuses to not give your life to Christ to begin with, the call to salvation. There's, there's two categories of people that don't give their lives to Christ. The people who think they're too good and the people who think they're too bad, right? Some people think, I'm, I'm a good person, I don't need Christ. You are not a good person. I mean, really, it's interesting. To think you're a good person is only because you're well-fed and warm. 
and the world works pretty well. That's the only reason you think you're a good person. If you ever talk to somebody who like, had to go and fight in the war, they do not think they're a good person anymore. That's what PTSD is. I saw myself do something. I'm not a good person. It's like, you, this is why people go, I, I got married, and then I was angry, and then we had kids, and I was really angry. It's like, no, you were always really angry. That's, you just were never in an environment where that part of you could come unlocked. And so, or, or there's other people who think, I'm too bad. And here's what we say to people who think you're too bad. That's very prideful of you to say. Because if you think you're too bad, that's, what you're saying is the cross is small and my sin is big. We would say your sin is big, the cross is bigger. And so the, the, the thing is, God wants to deal with our excuses. So I don't get into it right now, but several of the parables Jesus told was all about dealing with people's excuses. Being invited to a banquet and the different reasons people said they weren't going to come. To the rest of us, here's, here's just the honest question. What has God told you to do where you've just honestly, if we got to the bottom of it, you just said, I'm not willing. I'm unwilling. It's not that I can, it's not that I'm afraid, it's that I won't. And what would it look like for us to take responsibility for that and say, God, I, I've been looking for a loophole, I've been looking for a way out, instead I need grace. Let's pray together to be those type of people. Lord, that's what we want to do right now, Lord. We want to come to you with our excuses. Lord, I, I just pray right now you would meet every one of our needs. For those of us who, say, who just feel like whatever you're calling us to do, we feel like we can't. I pray that we would hear the word of God to us, I will be with you. To those of us who say, I have to learn, I have to learn about dating, or I have to learn about marriage, or I have to learn about money, or I have to learn about kids, or I have to learn about generosity, or you know, I have to learn about discipleship, Lord, that you would say, I will teach you. And I've given you a church to help you. And for those of us who would say, I'm afraid, you said, I've forever given you the two signs, the empty cross, or the bloody cross and the empty tomb. For those of us who say, hey, we're broken, you say, I know, and I'm working everything together for your good and my glory. Lord, let us be bold enough, if only in our own hearts, to sometimes say, Lord, we've been saying, I won't. And would you give us the grace of God to say, I will. We ask this in your name. Amen.